0: listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Lawrence Paniola with Drishti Point. Um, Dr. Christiane Northrup is my guest today, and uh, Dr. Northrup is a pioneer actually in uh, women's health. And um, she's a complete visionary, and she's actually a board-certified OBGYN physician physician uh, from the United States, and I think she's been in practice for more than 20 years. And she's recognized the unity of body, mind, and spirit. And she's, you know, really raising the um, feminine, bringing back the feminine, um, and empowering women to tune into their innate inner wisdom to transform their health. And truly flourish she's the author of women's bodies women's wisdom as I mentioned she's released her second book on that as well as the wisdom of menopause and her third book mother daughter wisdom which was a 2005 Quill Award nominee and it was voted Amazon's number one book of the year in both parenting and mind body health in 2005 And she also has her latest books, The Secret Pleasures of Menopause and The Secret Pleasures of Menopause Playbook. So there's a lot of information here, and I just want to give you her site. It's drnorthrup.com. And I'd like to officially welcome you to Drishti Point. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you, So is it that wonderful song you played Yes was from a woman who uh, liked my work?: Yes. oh, I just loved her. I yeah. loved the voice the whole thing.
0: Oh no, well, thank you. Well, I, she's listening now. Um, she's a friend and, and, and an artist, and she's just a beautiful singer.
1: <laughs> so if I uh, go to iTunes to and uh, put in "Suspended," I'll be able to find it.
0: Uh, you know, Theta Phoenix. And you know, I think if she's listening, she'll probably send you a copy. <laughs> <laughs> or at least we can arrange one for yeah, that you. That would be
1: wonderful. That would be just wonderful.
0: <laughs> okay. Now, I just also want to mention that Dr. Northrop will be in Vancouver on Wednesday, November the 3rd at Queen Elizabeth Theatre. And the name of the event is Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom Flourishing in a Female Body. And if you want um, more information on that, it's FlourishEventProductions.com, and it's sponsored by AcuBalance, Finlandia, and West Coast Women's Health, and just other sponsors are involved, which is wonderful. So, Dr. Northrup, I just want to open up by saying, you know, in your very early days of um, choosing your path, what was drawing you towards um, medicine, women's health?
1: such a great question. Thank you. I I came from a family where my aunt and uncle were both doctors, MDs, uh, one GP, one a pediatrician. My dad was a dentist, and today we would call him holistic. He took a lot of ribbing from his brother and sister about not being an MD, and yet he had a far better philosophy of life. He had more fun. He was healthier, and so i but i grew up with the thanksgiving dinner being like an ama meeting uh my I also had cousins and so on who became surgeons and family doctors and so on but my father was by far the strongest influence in my life because he used to say you can tell someone's state of health by looking in their mouth and he would also say mm-hmm. that uh, Dentists have the second-highest suicide rate compared to psychiatrists because it's almost as demoralizing to look into someone's mouth as it is to look inside their head. (laughs) 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 But he was into the work of Weston Price, uh, a dentist who years and years ago visited indigenous tribes and found that throughout the planet they had really good teeth and jaws and so on until they had eaten a refined food diet for just one generation. And in one generation, the structure of the jaw and the teeth and so on would disintegrate. So he was very interested in nutrition and we had an organic garden my mother used to uh, make yogurt this was before danon and the and the before yogurt was commercially available yes. and he would take it down the street to his patients who were on antibiotics for their dental problems so i had a tremendous influence about health from my dad and also some interesting uh, severe health problems in the family. I had a sister who died at the age of six months old. uh, My mother was on antibiotics the entire pregnancy for viral pneumonia, and back then, uh, the doctors gave antibiotics for everything. We had a family doctor named Dr. Molesky, and every time one of us had a cold, there were five kids, he'd come up the driveway in his big black car (laughs) and line us all up and give us shots of penicillin, because that was the miracle drug. And it was felt to cure everything. Now, of course, in retrospect, we have all these superbugs. Uh, there's a great line from Jurassic Park, uh, Nature always finds a way. Oh. And, you know, and if yeah. you keep uh, banging anti- antibiotics at germs, guess what? The germs get stronger. Mm-hmm. And so... I then had a brother who wouldn't eat, and my mother had watched my sister die in a pool of vomit behind a screen because you couldn't cold your babies back then. They were in a Fort Knox kind of intensive care unit for babies. And so my brother wouldn't eat, and my parents signed him out against medical advice and brought him home. And uh, he eventually recovered. That's a long story we don't need to get into. But when I interviewed for medical school, The guy who interviewed me asked me if I was from the Northrop family and he obviously wanted to know if I was related to that little boy. He had been the attending physician and they told my mother that he was retarded and uh, would never be healthy and all of the rest of it. From that situation, I learned very early on that standard conventional medicine does not have all the answers. And that was ingrained in me so early that later, when I was interviewing for medical school, I I drove home and my dad was sitting up in a chair all night because he had fluid two thirds of the way up in his lung fields. He had signed out of the cardiac intensive care unit of a hospital in Buffalo because though he had had chest pain and went in there, uh, he knew that they didn't know what was going on. Uh, He knew he didn't have a heart attack, and sure enough, He had uh, pericarditis. It had been misdiagnosed. and So he called my mother, Edna, come and get me. They don't know what's going on. (laughs) So imagine coming from a family where signing out against medical advice uh, is something that I saw done early on. So when I was an intern... And people, you know, the nurses would get all up in a flurry. Oh, my gosh, this person's going to sign out against medical advice. And I'd always think, oh, terrific. This is my kind of patient. And I'd go running down, and I would find out what was really going on. And most of the time, these people simply had not had the communication necessary to know what was going on and what the care plan was. And uh, And then I would say to them, If you want to leave, it's okay, because we'll be right here if -hmm. you need us again. Mm -hmm. But I learned early on the healing power of the human body. I never intended to go to medical school. Um, I went because an M.D. was a better degree than a Ph.D. I was a biology major, and I'd watched my aunt and uncle, and I said, I don't want to have a life like theirs. But then I saw a baby born, and I began to weep, nearly fell to the floor Mm -hmm. with emotion, And from that moment on, that's what women's health was it. I would be around women in labor was as normal to me as breathing, as though I were born to attend women who were birthing. And I now realize it doesn't matter if it's a physical birth or an emotional birth. We women are always birthing something, and we always need good midwives.
0: Wow. <laughs> you know, no, because this was, this was, this is going to be so early on in, in the interview, but I was going to ask you, um, one of the questions was, or is, um, if you're a first time mother, what do you think that you would like to impart to someone who's pregnant and is expecting in, in this, uh, day and age?
1: It's so interesting you bring this up because tomorrow I am participating in the first ever global teleseminar event called Ecstatic Birth. Oh,
0: okay.
1: And uh, the energy that gets the baby in gets the baby out. And this is, the, says Ina Mae Gaskin, the world's most famous midwife. She wrote Spiritual Midwifery and started uh, women's health practice at a commune called The Farm in Tennessee. And back in the 70s, when I was doing my residency, Ina May was traveling around in a hippie bus with her husband, Mm -hmm. and they founded the farm and they set up a women's health area because they knew that this was extraordinarily important for women to take back their power from the medical establishment. And she specialized in birthing. And. Down at the farm in Tennessee, 25% of the women who give birth give birth orgasmically. In other words, that they have a full-on orgasm during the birth process. And she has found that when a woman in labor is treated like a goddess, when she is massaged, when her, her beloved is with her, that birth itself is the other end of the sexual act. Mm-hmm. Now, what we've done in our modern hospitals Mm -hmm. because birth is not always perfect, we know that, we've gone the other way entirely. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's happening in Vancouver, but I will tell you in the majority of hospitals in the United States, the birth process is so mistrusted that women are now induced for convenience or they schedule elective cesarean sections for convenience, actually believing that having an induction so that you can schedule when your mother needs to come or having major surgery is somehow safer and is somehow um, superior to a normal labor and birth. And that's why, in the United States, the maternal mortality has doubled in the last 20 years. Maternal mortality... Um, We are, I'm certain that Canada is further along than the United States, but the way the statistics are kept is that this fact is hidden, because if a woman comes in uh, six weeks postpartum with a pulmonary embolus, this isn't counted as a maternal death, even though it uh, stems from the unnecessary surgery that she's had. So what I want all pregnant women to know is that their bodies were designed to give birth but they're designed to give birth when fully supported, not in an environment in which the entire medical staff believes that a normal birth is a retrospective diagnosis, meaning the way labor is conducted in many hospitals is it is seen as a disaster waiting to happen. And that very self-fulfilling prophecy infects a woman in labor, because when you're in labor, your insides are on the outsides, and you're incredibly intuitive, but incredibly vulnerable. You're in a hyper-suggestible state, and you can be talked into anything, hmm. and that's why right. it's really important stay out of the hospital as long as you can. The minute you go in there, the clock starts ticking, and the way that most labor and delivery suites work is that if you're in a bed, the clock starts ticking, so therefore they do things to speed up your labor, like rupture your membranes, and then there's no going back. Uh, About 50% of women in their first labor go in, and they're not really in progressive labor yet, but they go in too soon, and then the interventions begin, and one follows another, follows another, and this does not Happen because the staff is um, malevolent in any way. It's literally about a system. It's a system-wide thing in our culture where we do not understand or believe or support the wisdom in the birthing woman's body. And that's part of my work. I, I started my work... In birth, watching mm. birth, attending birth, I understand birth, and I've had two babies of my own, uh, both with no anesthesia, both normal births, and I left the hospital an hour or two later with both babies because I didn't want my my babies to go to what a friend of mine, a family doc, calls uh, the the uh, nursery, which is the um, <laughs> he called it the concentration camp for babies. Oh, I mean, God. why would you want your baby? to go into a room where the lights are on and the things are beeping and this baby is a mammal. We don't remove puppies from their mother, do we? We don't remove kittens, newborn kittens, from their mother. This would be insane. We all know that. Why do we remove newborn babies from their mothers?
0: I mean, what you're speaking of, I I, I think on some level it does happen here also. What I also find really interesting, I'm actually drawn to the birthing process. I have no children, but I just find it fascinating because I think it's really important how we enter the world.
1: It's hugely important. It imprints us for our entire life. Yes. We also know that mm-hmm. uh, whether or not one gets heart disease and so on becomes, to a large extent, wired in in utero mm-hmm. by the events of a woman's pregnancy. mm mm-hmm. God, that, that oh God, that's both sad and fascinating. It, it's sad and ha- and fascinating. However, right. I believe in in plasticity. Uh, plasticity is the human body's ability to heal anything.
0: Mm, okay, yeah. Um, what's interesting also is the the you know there's also talk about right now about the the, the feminine. You know, bringing awareness um, back to the feminine. Yes, and um. You know, I, I think that, you know, if I encounter a pregnant friend, for example, then they there's a sense of fear before they go and give birth. It's yeah. almost we've moved away from who we actually are as human beings, and I find that a little bit um, sad. But I also can't, you know, go into a place of judgment because I'm not in their shoes, you know. But I, I'm just seeing as an observer, you know. Um, I just recognize that, and I just think it's really sad. And I can say that, you know, as a society, we're not really supporting who we are as human beings. And we can take this across the board, from birthing to, you know, one of the things that you mentioned on your website this month was being that it's Cancer Month, right?
1: Oh, yes, yes. Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Do you think we need more awareness about breast cancer? <laughs> I don't think so. What we need is more awareness about breast health.
0: Yes. And, you know, you've mentioned the, the, the thermography. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would love to have that available, you know, but it always boils down to, you know, people questioning the cost. And again, a system not really supporting who we are because I really don't want to go get a mammogram. I know the 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 radiation is just, you know, wreaking well, havoc. Well, think
1: about it. When if you were to follow the guidelines, and, and happily for Canadians, the mm-hmm. guidelines are uh, more lenient than in the states. The states being a uh, a profit-driven healthcare system yes. or disease care system. Yes. Yes. Uh, then we recommend lots more testing. We actually believe in the states that women's health consists of getting disease screening tests. That, that's what we think women's health is. Mm. Uh, you know, I, right. It, it, yeah, so I, I always summarize that with um, you don't have it yet, but keep coming back, we'll find it. Sure. And that's women's health. Okay. Now, so the, the, something, a modality such as thermography, mm-hmm. I predict within five years, ten years, this will be mainstream. It's an old technology. Uh, There are many good studies about it from the 70s, and then it simply didn't catch on in the way the mammogram did. And Generally, if you go back through history, you'll find that there are twists of fate in which someone was a better marketer or whatever, so... For instance, we have Thomas Edison in Electricity was the one who got all the credit, even though Nikola Tesla was the one who did a great deal of work uh, with alternating current, and he actually put Thomas Edison to shame. But Edison was a much better showman, and so we always remember him. And I believe that with thermography and mammography, the story is the same, where something will not get the uh, the backing that it needs. See thermography. Let's let's look at it economically. There's no X-ray. There's no film. Yes. All you're doing is uh, sensing heat with a camera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's no radiation. And each woman's breast has a different pattern so it has to, it's individualized you're you're not looking for a lesion you're looking for a heat pattern and then the beauty of that heat pattern is that you can then tell whether or not a woman has cellular inflammation because inflammation is the beginning of cancer mm. and this is this you would be able to see this before a woman developed cancer, in most cases, not all. This does not preclude mammograms. It is a modality, however, that is functional. In other words, it's telling you what's going on moment to moment with blood flow, and then you can do something about it before it becomes cancer. Now, take a look at a system. So that's one thing, and thermography should be a part of breast care, and it will be, but for right now, what we're just talking about right now, if you look at what people elect to spend their money on, they'll take a plane trip to Mexico, uh, they'll buy a new flat-screen television, <laughs> a new couch, but they will tell you they cannot afford a thermogram for $50 because it's not covered by insurance. Do you see how even that... Means they have given away their own power to be healthy to a bureaucracy and to a system that is treating a herd, not an individual. I resonate with what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, most of my personal health care I pay for myself. You do. I, I don't, yeah, I don't expect my insurance to cover anything, and I'm almost never disappointed about that. Uh, I get a weekly massage, I do acupuncture at least four times a year just at the change of seasons, mm-hmm. uh, I occasionally get a chiropractic adjustment, mm-hmm. I do Pilates three times a week, and I dance tango and I take vitamins. That's pretty much my healthcare care routine. Right. Notice, there's no MD in there anywhere. (laughs)
0: Uh, My guest today is Dr. Christiane Northrup, who will be joining um, us in Vancouver at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre on Wednesday, November the 3rd. If you haven't purchased your tickets, I highly encourage you to do so. And if you're unable to attend, buy her book, (laughs) Women's, (laughs) Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, or whatever stage you are in the process of your life, perhaps a book on menopause. So, um, to continue our conversation, Dr. Northrup, um, how did the books come about? And who? Well, first, first let me just say, Uh, the, the books
1: came about because of inspiration, and I found that the voice of Will Blunderfield was. Aww. incredibly inspiring and gorgeous. I thought Katie Lang did a good job with that song, but then I heard Will.
0: <laughs> amazing.
1: Yeah. It's amazing. Well, Woo-hoo. thank you.
0: And he's listening right now. He is? Yes. Well,
1: he's a genius. Yeah. He's got the voice of an angel. Woo! <laughs> Loved it. That was worth doing the whole show. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, so how did the books come about? All right. So back in the early 80s, I was, uh, introduced to the American Holistic Medical Association and uh, but a little before that, I worked with Michio Kushi in Boston, who was the founder of the uh, the Cushy Institute and the East-West Journal and the East-West Foundation, and I used to sit with Michio when he would do consultations with his patients and put them on a macrobiotic diet. Now, what was most interesting about that is that I had just finished uh, basically seven years of uh, training in Western medicine, and I would read the charts of these people, and they had uh, been pretty much put through the ringer in the standard medical world and given up for hopeless. So nobody came to macrobiotics proactively. Mm -hmm. They came when it was the last possible thing. And there's nothing like sitting with patients who have been given up on by medicine to open your eyes, particularly when some of them started to get better and actually reversed cancers and so on. So uh, I was doing that, and uh, in my practice in the early 80s, I saw a lot of macrobiotic patients, and I saw the effect of nutrition on health and the body and so on. Then I was part of the American Holistic Medical Association, and I found my tribe, as it were, but understood that conventional medicine had a great deal to offer. So I always tried to bring the two things together. Mm -hmm. But when it came to women's health there was very little of of bringing together the emotional and the psychological and the spiritual because even in those who were on a macrobiotic diet, I found that if they did not deal with the issues in their lives, sexual abuse, alcoholism in a father, this sort of thing, then it didn't matter what they ate. And even if they tried to keep their diet good, they would eventually go back to addictive substances or processes to deal with their emotional pain, the unfinished business of their of their childhood and so on. Uh, I remember way back again in the mid-80s going to a lecture at our hospital, and I was very aware that things like chronic pelvic pain were often the body's cry for help, uh, about sexual abuse that had gone on, or rape, or anything of that nature. Mm. And everyone thought I was crazy. But I saw it so much that I finally decided I needed to write about it. And I wrote a little article for Woman of Power magazine uh, mm. about the mind-body connection in women's health. and it And suddenly I had literary agents, actually I didn't have literary agents calling me, but I stood at my bedside one morning on a Friday morning, and I said, Infinite universe, show me a sign. Give me the next best use of my gifts and talents. And that afternoon, a literary agent called me. That's the the honest-to-God truth. Really? And he said, it's time you wrote a book. Because I was listening to women's stories, I was hearing the untold stories of their lives, and Mm -hmm. I couldn't find this anywhere. Anywhere. And I had to then invent a language of health, a language of women's wisdom, because then, as now, the language of women's bodies was a language of dis-ease. So what was the wisdom of the menstrual cycle? This wasn't the curse. This is a cycle responsible for all life on earth, and it is our connection with the, the moon and our lunar wisdom, what was the wisdom of the vagina and the cervix and the breasts? Breasts are not two pre-malignant lesions sitting on a woman's chest just waiting to get cancer, so they should be removed prophylactically. Thank you very much. <laughs> what, what? <laughs> so, I don't mean uh, to laugh. It's just that it's the but way But It's you, true, though, yes. but think about it. That's how For we sure. do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, and, yes. and, and if you want a real laugh, you compare men's health with women's health. So uh, orchiectomy, removing the testicles, will pretty much eliminate any chance for prostate cancer. How many guys will go in and get their testicles removed to prevent a cancer in the testicles or the prostate? Well, there Not you go. Not a one. There Not you a go. one. Oh, because God. the family jewels are precious to everyone, and they won't have <laughs> those removed. But women... Women will go in and get their ovaries. They'll be talked out of their ovaries um, at least half the time. Okay, I love the way you articulated that. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about you Canadians, you're really grounded people. You're close to the earth, and you call a spade a spade, and I like that.
0: Well, thank you. Well, you seem to be the same. Yes, I am. You're- I'm very much the same. <laughs> so we're mirroring each other then. That's right. All right.
1: Okay, uh- <laughs> and so that's why I wrote the first book, and really, mm-hmm. it took me uh, six or seven years, but it was a lifetime, really, of writing that book and creating a new language of uh, of women's health, and then teaching women to think differently about their bodies, mm-hmm. because if, if you believe that your body is a disaster waiting to happen, or uh, you are supposed to be bringing forth children in pain and suffering because someone named, named Eve ate an apple. Do you see how crazy that is? Right. This is crazy. Our Creator did not create a female body that is a lemon. These processes and organs of the female body have meaning. They have wisdom. We can tap into them to guide our lives. And when there is dis-ease then something is wrong with the way we're thinking about it. And in the case of women's bodies, the whole culture pretty much has it wrong.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, is the second version quite different than the first book? In the second version, the one that's the
1: newest version that came out in June, there's a a huge new section on breast health, all kinds of stuff on vitamin D, iodine for uh, decreasing the risk of breast cancer, and also... Uh, taking away breast pain, um, a whole new pelvic health program, a whole new breast health program. There's a lot of new stuff in the the new version. So when people come up to me at a book signing and they have one of the really old versions, I completely understand loving your first editions. I, I love them myself. But if you want the latest information on how to keep yourself healthy, then the new one is what you want.
0: Right. Okay. Well, yeah. I, I'm start I've started off with the first one. I actually you know what's funny is that I read this book from front to back, right? Wow. And which that, is
1: amazing because it's huge. <laughs> I
0: know, right? Because I was determined. I said it's not going to like be on the shelf so I can stare at it the whole time. And so when you came out with the second version, I went, she did what? I go, and I thought, maybe, I hope that she highlighted some of the pages so I don't have to go and see, you know what I mean? So, oh, that makes
1: what... sense, yeah. Sit there with you know both books open to see what's new. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um,
0: you've got a beautiful statement in here by Carl Jung um, when you said said the gods that the gods visit us through illness. Isn't that beautiful?
1: It really is, and there's another mm-hmm. one that I love, which is the blood of the wound contains the healing. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can, we can always trust our bodies. They're always leading us in the direction we need to go, and usually that direction is toward self-love,
0: mm-hmm.
1: toward self-acceptance, and uh, also accepting the notion that every one of us has needs that have not been met. In fact, needs that we were most likely talked out of in childhood, that our parents before us were talked out of, and so our bodies, like little children, are simply crying out for our forgiveness, our love, and our attention.
0: Hmm. What would you say, Dr. Northrop, um, when you were seeing patients? What what would they What did they teach you the most?
1: The most interesting thing happened within the first week that we opened Women to Women. Okay. And uh, this was one of the very first healthcare centers for women run by women in the United States. And women, we had it uh, in an old Victorian house. I, I knew that women felt at home. In a home. And so we bought this old Victorian house that, where they had raised eight children. And we turned the closets into changing areas and the bedrooms into exam rooms and, and so on. And it, it's still there today, being run by uh, Marcel Pick, who was one of my uh, original partners. And so women would come in and they would instantly feel as though this was a place in which they could tell the, the whole story of their bodies. And routinely, they would come in, they would sit down on the couch in my office and start to weep. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It happened over and over and over. And you know, to this day, my my daughter, who is 29, one of the oldest one, Mm -hmm. just went in for a pelvic exam in New York City. And she said to me, shouldn't it be routine by now for the speculums to be warmed? It's hard for me to believe that 30 Years later, 35 years later, mm-hmm. people still don't put the speculums on a heating pad in the drawer. Mm-hmm. I mean, what? Hello! How long? How long? Oh God. <laughs> We're going to have to wait here. I mean, she was, uh, and then the person said to her, um, oh, she was talking with them about whatever's going on, and, and she mentioned who I was, and they said, well, you know, can't she help you? Now, how inappropriate is that? Yeah. You said she's my mother. Right. I mean, boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. But anyhow, women always told me what was really the cause of their illness. Mm. I would ask them, what's going on in your life? What is going on in your life? You know, if you have eight yeast infections in a year, you don't have a monostat deficiency. You've got something else going on. Mm-hmm. And I've often said it's graphic, but I'll say it. If the upper lips can't talk, the oh, lower God. lips will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's move then to uh, move on to uh, menopause. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Menopause, the big wake-up call. I remember back before I wrote the original version of The Uh Wisdom of Menopause, thinking, there are already too many menopause books out here. What could possibly be said about menopause? Then I went through it, and I said, aha, aha, this is the mother of all wake-up calls. This is when the rubber hits the road. This is when every relationship that is not working, every time you've put yourself last, every time you are draining out your life energy in the opposite direction of where it should go, that's the degree to which you get hit between the eyes by menopausal symptoms. And age 49 is when I ended a 24-year marriage. And similar things happen for other women. I do not advocate divorce ever, but I do know that some relationships, some containers, whether that be at work or in your personal life, some containers are simply not strong enough to sustain the woman you have become. So menopause is adolescence in reverse. It's an update of unfinished business from the first half of your life. Mm -hmm. Much of it is stemming back to the eighth grade, and it is a time for you to, uh, as I said, upgrade those areas in which you felt you weren't pretty enough or you weren't skilled enough or whatever. Mostly, it is the cry of your soul. Your life needs to be sourced from your soul, not from what society expects of you. So. During a woman's reproductive years, biologically speaking, she's programmed to put the needs of her children and her mate and her parents, perhaps, and her boss before her own, and that is adaptive. You have to learn how to fit into society. We are herd creatures, but what happens at midlife, for men too, by the way, yes, I was is, going to ask that. Yeah, is that we can no longer sustain health, physical health if we are putting our own needs and desires on the back burner. So this is a time when women will typically want to start a new business. Uh, A friend of mine bought a stallion, a Frisian, to Mm -hmm. learn to ride dressage. Mm -hmm. She had always wanted to do it. And you get this sense in your body. You know how at this time of year all the flies come in because they know that it's going to get cold out there and pretty soon they're going to die if they stay? Well, on a, that's a miniature level. On a macrocosmic level, you realize, I am not going to live forever. What am I waiting for?
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, by listening to you, you seem to me like you're a channeler. You know, it's like you channel things, I feel.
1: I think you're right you know, about that actually. Yeah. And when I'm on stage mm-hmm. something happens. Oh really? So I, I, yeah, yeah, I always get all I have all these notes and things that I think I'm gonna say and then <laughs> invariably I never touch them. I don't look at them. Something happens with the audience and whatever is being asked by the participants, the answers come out of my mouth somehow.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean-
1: and yeah, and that's what happens when you hit midlife for everybody. We become far more intuitive right. and far more in touch with our inner guidance, which is why, to me, this number of women at midlife now, the baby boom women who are the richest and most powerful demographic in the culture, but they don't know it. It's the best thing that's ever happened to the planet. Okay. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So um, we're going to, I'm going to end off with some, we still have some time, but I just want to end off with some questions for you, some personal things. All right. If you've, when you've looked back on your life, I mean really, from... From you know from what you've created you've 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 got this beautiful creation going on right now um, what what surprises you about it what makes you smile oh that's uh, yeah. What makes me smile is that I never thought
1: my work would be accepted in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. If if you could have realized what it was like in 1982, you'd talk to a woman with breast cancer about nutrition, and you had to close the door of your office so that your colleagues wouldn't report you to the Board of Registration in Medicine. Wow, that's how scary it was. And so, who? Where did you find your support? Uh, Through my mainly through my connection with a higher power and with a sense that this, that this needed to be said. And I always had this backup plan, and I'll bet everyone listening has one of these. Um, one of my friends was at the University of Vermont College of Medicine, and when things got really hard, they would look at this poster for the White Mountain School of Trucking, and they'd say, if all else fails, we can be truck drivers. And in my case, it was, if this fails... I will be a cocktail waitress or I will play my harp at weddings or something like that. I had a, a a backup plan, and repeatedly I would say to myself, if I cannot practice medicine in a way that honors the fullness of, uh, of a person, then I won't be able to practice at all. This has been a, a walk over hot coals. This has been a fire walk. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten into the... Uh, the nitty gritty of what I have been through. However, uh, years and years ago, in talking to Andy Weil at a meeting of the Holistic Medical Association, he said, I've learned that you can say almost anything if you don't say it with anger. And one of the things, I think, go, circling back to my dinner table and Thanksgiving tables with my aunt and uncle, MDs, doctors were family. And so I always understood them as human beings, and I've never taken on the medical establishment because I have such deep affection for the practice of medicine and the usefulness of drugs and surgery. Uh, But still, my success has been amazing to me. And right now where I am in my life Mm -hmm. this is the best time of my life and I know, absolutely know that my best years are ahead of me.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I believe you. Um, (laughs) um, So what do you think, what do you feel actually the meaning of your life is? I was born on
1: a gibbous moon. A gibbous moon is the moon just before the full moon. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the meaning of my life has been to be a midwife for the soul of the feminine mm. as it exists in women and in men. Because I will say that the the feminine energy in men has been every bit as raped as the feminine energy in women. And we're now coming into a partnership society where The role of each gender must be honored, and I have begun to see the ways in which women can elevate men and can make men into heroes. And our our Shakti, our life force, has the ability to do this, and I'm astounded by what a positive force for good it can
0: be. Mm, That's really beautiful. Yeah. And so... Um, If there's anything that you want to impart to our listeners today, what would that be?
1: That the number one pharmaceutical that they all need to know about is neurotransmitters that are created in the brain when it thinks, but also in the gut, which reacts. The gut makes more neurotransmitters than the brain, Our bodies know when something is right and they know when something is wrong and we can trust that. We also know that gratitude is powerful, powerful medicine and gratitude and forgiveness and having the courage to find the perfection in every situation in which you find yourself which only happens after you've done a full emotional release. But then when you find the perfection, miracles happen in your
0: life. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I just want to thank you for contributing, for all the contributions that you've made through your talks, through your radio shows, through your books, and for coming to Vancouver. I am looking forward to meeting you. I hope I get to meet you. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and thank you for being a part of reclaiming the femininity and allowing us to find our own female in our own authentic way and um, I just really appreciate who you are and and I appreciate the time that you took t- uh, you know, to be with me today and I wish you so many blessings in this next chapter in your life whatever comes up for you
1: thank you so much, it's been my pleasure
0: thank you uh-huh and bye bye, and it's been my pleasure in sharing uh, Dr. Christian Northwick with you today. And I hope you have a beautiful night. Namaste. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.